With Progressive's Name Your Price tool, you can find options that fit your budget. Because giving you options is the right thing to do. Oh yeah, like when I hold the door for someone. Sure, it may be weird if I don't time it right, and they're a little too far away, and oh, now they're running. And we're both asking ourselves, is it worth it to run instead of just, you know, letting them open their own door? But still, it's the right thing to do. So get options based on your needs with Progressive's Name Your Price tool. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and third-party insurers. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Welcome to the Goldmine Podcast. This is Pat Prince, editor of Goldmine. And today, our guest will be Emilio Castillo. And Emilio is one of the founding members of Tower of Power. And uh, everyone from the 70s will remember Tower of Power. They were a big... They were a big hit in the 70s, and they continue on to this day touring like crazy. And they also have a new album out, and we'll talk to Emilio about that. But Emilio is one of the uh, founding members, along with uh, Doc Kupka and Rocco, um, Rocco Pastilla, Prestia, and David Garibaldi. We'll get Emilio on the phone. We'll get Emilio on the phone in a few seconds. Hello, this is Emilio. This is Pat from Goldmine Magazine. Anyway, how are you doing? Uh, good, good. Deep in the sauce right now, but I, you surviving. Sh- you sure are. I mean, uh, yeah. We're- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're hitting it hard, man. That's good. Hey, um, 50 years, I mean, you know, you got to wear that it's as amazing. a... Ba- 50 years, it's amazing that we can hit it hard. <laughs> yeah. Hey, it's like a badge of honor, isn't it? Well, let me tell you, it sure is. And you're one of the four original members, right? I mean, there's yeah, there are four of you, right? Uh huh. Yeah, me and Doc uh, and David Garibaldi and Rocco Prestillo. Although he's not with us right now, we uh, yeah. he's not with us anymore. To tell you the truth, we uh, oh. we had to we had to take him off the road for health reasons, and yeah. uh, you know, after that, his sub who's been subbing for him. For various health reasons, reasons for the last fifteen years, he just really earned the gig, and so we made him the guy. So right now we're three, but we, we were four all the way up to the making of this record. Actually, all the way up to June first. That's know. amazing. Yeah. Um, so you formed in '68, and you formed yeah. in uh, a place that I love. You know, I lived for five years in um, Berkeley and San Francisco. And oh, okay. And, uh, but you grew up, you were, you, I was there in the nineties and you know, that's a much different landscape than 1968. (laughs) Oh yeah. Completely different. And, uh, but now, I mean, you were in the, you formed the band and while everything was brewing there, 60s social movements, everything. And I'm sure, I'm sure you could compare some of that to the unrest today. No. Do you see similarities? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, because I'm a child of that generation, I see similarities all the way down the line. I mean, every decade that I've been through since then. Yes. That's how we were raised. It was part of our mentality, you know. Right. Uh, You know, you realize, that's what it was. It was an age of realization. (laughs) You know, everybody freaking woke up and said, wait a minute. (laughs) You know, let's look at this. And the more they look, the more they questioned, and the more they questioned, the more inquisitive they got, and it was a great, great time to be in the Bay Area, and it was a really great time for music, because it was 
the music mecca. I mean, everybody was moving there from all over the states. Now, you know, I can, I can, uh, you know, when I grew up in the '80s, and the '80s was a different time, but I always respected you guys that were musicians in the '60s because of that um, belief system. You know, you you guys, you guys had a. Uh, you had your ear to the ground, and you, you, you know, you were definitely you had an open realization to things, like you pointed yeah, out. Yeah, it was a serious enlightenment era. You know, yes. it was like a flower, a flower blossoming, man. I mean, it, it really came into full bloom. You know, it started sort of started about two and a half years before we came into the scene. You know, right. we were young teenagers, and you know the the whole summer of love and the hippie movement, all that stuff was starting to brew. And then in 68, it fully blossomed. In 69, we came in the scene. In 1970, we got signed. So we were there for it all, you know. And what happened was there was a lot of psychedelic music and mind-bending music going on for about three or four years there. But during that time, Bill Graham yeah. was tweaking the musical eater of the yeah. Bay Area because he would have all these weird bands playing psychedelic music and he'd bring in, you know, uh, James Cotton and uh, Sam and Dave. And yes. then the next night he'd have Miles Davis and Rasan Roland Kirk and Otis Redding along with Big Brother and the Holding Company and Quicksilver Messenger Service, you know. So they're, and everybody's, their mind, you know, their, their minds are just getting blown and they're like, this is cool. This is cool, right? You know, and what was happening? Everybody's ear was getting tweaked, yeah. you know. And, and right about the time we came in to audition at the Fillmore, they were ready for a big funky horn band with a soul singer up front, and they ate it up. I wish it was like that in these times, where these times everything's put in genres. I like the fact that a soul band can open up for a rock band. You know, I, I just—it's it, a shame yeah. it doesn't work like that anymore. I mean, you know, corporate rock is different, and you know yeah. uh, the way people see things is different. But it's it, it's still happening. It's still happening because you know what? Yeah, it does. There's still young people. Yeah, there's still young people, and young people always find the good music, and they always find it the rarest ways. You know, yeah. uh, I'm not one of these people that says, "Oh, there ain't no good music no more." <laughs> there everything's changed. You know, yeah, it's changed, but it's still happening. You know, there's still lame parts of it, and there's still really creative parts. Because Amelia, you start when you say that, you start sounding like a parent. You know, when you say there is, there's yeah. not any good music yeah. anymore. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, don't, don't you remember? Your, yeah, yeah. My parents used to say that. You know? Yeah, and their parents said it too. Yeah. Know? Well, is this is this story true that okay? You originally called the Motowns, and you wanted to play the Fillmore. You wanted Bill Graham to n re notice you guys, and you changed your name from the Motowns to to a to a name of a band that you thought uh, Tower of Power that would be he would like. Is that true? Is there any validity to that? Well, we didn't change it to that name because we thought he would like it. We needed a different name and a different look. We were a bunch of little vatos from the East Bay wearing suits and had razor cuts and doing steps. Yeah, and you know. And that, that's what we were. We were a little soul band, you know, but we wanted to get into the film work because that's where it was happening. We had been playing black nightclubs and soul nightclubs in the East Bay for, you know, two years. And we had gotten busted for being underage. So mm. that had dried up because uh, they, they couldn't hire us no more. Mm. And that was all we had. We had that audition at the end of the year. We were broke. 
and we were shooting for that. But, you know, we knew we were never going to get in there with a name like the Motown and looking the way we did, you know, mm. and everybody was starting to, you know, fall in with the with the scene. And they were just growing their hair long and wearing wild clothes, and we started doing that, and, but we needed a name. And I was at this recording studio in Hayward, and we were on a break, and I was sitting at the owner's desk, and there was a list of weird band names. <laughs> the guy had written out a list. It was like two pages long. You know, like, uh, you know, Lothar and the Hand People and, uh, you know, the Poppy Seed Revolution and, you know, all that kind of weird stuff, you know. And I'm looking through the list and I'm like, <laughs> you know, none of these names fit us. And then I saw the name Tower of Power and I said, huh. huh. And I went out and I, I go, hey, what about Tower of Power? And the guys go, yeah, yeah, that, that fits us. Yeah. <laughs> And that was it, you know, but it wasn't like we were trying to please Bill Graham, but we were trying to change our image so we could fit in at the film wall. Gotcha. You know? And that was, that was like nine months away. Do you remember first meeting Bill? Did, was it, did you click right away with him? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I met him the night we auditioned, and uh, I remember a guy came back and said, Bill wants to see you, and I was frightened because i had seen him in action yeah. i had seen him throw somebody down the stairs at the film you, you did know? oh he, man oh yeah oh yeah i mean bill was a <laughs> he was a piece of work you know but i remember we were playing and you know there had been four bands already and they were all the same you know they had three guitars and and a drummer and they all played in the key of a and e and d and you know and then we come out and we got these horns and this black guy singing and we start with the james brown tune but everybody when they saw us they were like oh man what's this and they turned around and started walking out but when we hit with that james brown tune opened the door it was like somebody said about face man everybody turned around and started walking back in and i saw the door open at the back by the snack bar and that was Bill's office. I didn't know it at that time. But I remember I see this light, the door opens, I see his head stick out. And that was Bill Graham. And after the show, someone comes and says, Bill wants to see you, you know. <laughs> so I'm like, oh boy, you know. We we just thought we were auditioning, you know. So I go in there and I sit down and he's at the desk and he's got all this cash and he's counting cash, counting cash. He's not saying a word to me. And I'm sitting there and finally I go they said you wanted to see me. And he goes, just a minute. You know, <laughs> I go, I'm just like, I don't know what's going on, you know? And he counts all the money. And then he, he looks at me and goes, hey, this is for you. And he gave me, uh, you know, a couple hundred dollars or something, you know? And I was like, really? You know, I, we, we didn't think we were getting paid, you know? And he, he paid us, you know? And then, uh, and I had told the man, by that point, we were so freaking broke and so at the end of our rope, I told the band, I said, you know, after the audition, if nothing happens, I said, I, for one, I'm flying out the next day to Detroit. My, my parents said, move back to Detroit. Yeah. I said, I'm going back to spend the holidays with my family. If nothing happens, I ain't coming back. And right. Doc was devastated, man, mm. you know. And they were all just like, you know, oh, what was me? You know, what are we going to do now, you know? And I got back to Detroit, and two days later, Doc called me. He said, you got to come back. You gotta come back. He dug it. He dug it. I go, who dug it? He says, Bill Graham. He wants to sign us to a record deal. And I said, you know, I had this little Vox organ that I hated because I, by then I was used <laughs> to playing a B3, yeah. you know, and, and so, but I always kept the Vox just in case we were doing like a fair or something where there was no B3. I would take the Vox, you know, and I told him, hock the organ and send me a ticket. 
<laughs> and that was that album was East Bay Grease, right? Nineteen seventy. That uh, well, was on... yeah. Within a year, we recorded East Bay Grease, and uh, the producer was David Rubinson. And you know, David Rubinson and Bill Graham had become partners and started yeah. these two record labels. Right. And everybody wanted to be on those labels. Everybody, famous people were trying to get on that label, and for some reason, he picked us. And the rest is history. And, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think about all the um, album, everybody you've collaborated with, not just not just the albums you put out, but all the people. How is it to switch gear and collaborate from everyone from Aaron Neville to Aerosmith? That That's pretty remarkable. Well, for one, it's really easy for us because, you know, uh, we have a certain way of approaching sessions. You know, we write to their music. We're not going in there trying to make it sound like Tower of Power. We're going in there to put the Tower of Power horn stamp on their music and not get in their way. Right. And uh, so it's really easy for us. We write a simple chart because with rock and roll and pretty much any all the other styles of music that we've done sessions for, you know, less is more. Yes. And so we pick our spots so that when we do play, people go, oh, wow, what was that? You know? It was, uh, that was that was Tower of Power horns, you know, and a lot of that, a lot of the credit for that, goes to our arranger at the time, Greg Adams. He wrote in a way that made us really speak in other people's music. But it's really easy for us, you know. They they call us up, they say they want us Tuesday at eleven. We show up, we got a chart, we play it. The guy says, "I love it." What about this part? Can we change it? We go, "Yeah, sure." And by two o'clock, we we're having lunch. And now let's talk about the new album. I mean, it's just like your vintage stuff, but it's got a modern freshness to it. And it's together, it's it's polished. My favorite track, you know, I know, I think uh, the title track is, is that the uh, the song, the single? I think that's what they're doing. You know, it's hard for me to tell. I know they put out After Hours as a smooth jazz single. They're yeah. running Soul Side of Town as the main single. There's talk about Sela. I, I don't know what they're doing. I, frankly don't care i'm just glad it's doing well. <laughs> i like butterfly that's uh, my favorite i get a lot of comments about that how do you you know i know you're very excited about the new album um how, how do you feel about it what's your did you go back and listen to it when you first got that copy what did you feel like honestly i haven't stopped listening to it since i made it and that's really mm -hmm. odd for me because once i make a record i'm done you know I may listen to it a couple of years down the road and go, oh, wow, that sounds pretty good, you know, but I never listen to my own music once I'm done with it. And I've been working on this thing for a long time, so you would think I'd be bored with it, but I am so proud of it, and I enjoy hearing it so much. When I'm at home and I'm driving around in my car in Phoenix, I'm playing both albums, because we actually have two albums. Right. One's going to come out a year from now. I've heard about that. And, uh, yeah, and I played both records over and over, and I do not get tired of it. And, you know, that, that might sound prideful, man, but I, I don't know. I'm just so proud of this record, man. It's, uh, it came out great, and I give most of the credit for that to Joe Vanelli. You know, uh, I had already recorded 17 tracks, and I went to go work with him a couple of days, and he was so meticulous, and by then I realized that what I was endeavoring to do was way too much for me because I was going to make, I was trying to make the best record of my career when, you know, my old, manager said you got to do the michael jackson way you know record way more than you need to pick the best 12 so i was shooting for 25 tracks yeah and i i knew at that point that i was overwhelmed and i said joe can you help me finish this and he said yeah i'd love to 
And that proved to be a really smart move because yeah. that guy pushed me harmonically. He pushed me, uh, you know, production-wise. He pushed me rhythmically uh, in the engineering in every single area. He just pushed the envelope. I did things I would never do, and uh, it just really paid off. I made a deal with myself when I started working with him that no matter what he suggested, I was going to give him my best shot to make it work. And, you know, Joe, he's not a real good singer. He's a great musician, but when he sings, <laughs> it can be pretty shaky. And he would sing his idea to me, and I'd go, uh, but then I'd tell myself, no, 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 just, and I, I, you know, I'd try to suss out what he was looking for. I'd put my own particular soulful spin on it. He'd say, yeah, that's it, and we'd record it, and man, it came out great. I'm so proud of it. Well, what I, one of the lyrics on the title track uh, is "One Big Family and Everyone's a Star," and and you've you have a lot of members in the band. You've had a lot of members in the past. I guess it would have to operate like a family, wouldn't it? <laughs> like you a know, big I've been family that way for many many years. Uh, yeah, you know, we just did the, the anniversary shows up in Oakland, and I had you know what six, five or six past members playing with me up there. Then we went down and we. Uh, we closed the the Playboy Jazz Festival celebrating. They were celebrating their 40th anniversary, and I had Greg Adams come and play with us there. And uh, you know, I'm on the East Coast now. I'll see old members out here. I have good relationships with all my past members, and I think of all of them as a family. And it's been that way for many, many years, and I'm so grateful for it. How is uh, the gu- guitarist Bruce Conti? I know he was battling uh, an illness. Right? You know, he's, he's doing good, man. Uh, he still he has to take this medicine, and it's quite expensive, but somehow he manages to get it free every time he gets it. So mm. he's doing good. He told me uh, when he was there, he said, yeah, he goes, I just was here, because he lives in the Philippines. Yeah. But he, he was he was back, and uh, he said, I just gathered all my medicine. He said, I got enough to last me for 19 months. And I was like, wow, that's great. You know, and we went out to dinner, and we were just telling old stories and laughing, you know. I mean, he's he's a funny guy, man, you know. We just laughed for several hours at dinner and each day at the, the sound check, at the rehearsal, at the gigs, and he burned it down. I was so happy, and he looked really good. So I don't know what's going on with his illness, but it seems like he's got it at bay. Yeah, his guitar work on the uh, Tower of Power album was great. I, my, one of my favorite songs is uh, What is Hip? And, yeah, uh, I mean he's got his own signature. He does. You know, that's that's really the key for any artist. You got to find your own signature. And I think it goes back to what you said when um, a great great musicians are kind of like restrained. They don't go overboard. They they they're right in the middle there to please. And he yeah. was he was like that man. He uh, he just he had a soothing presence with that guitar. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you honestly, you know. Uh, I wondered about, you know, how he was going to bring it. And he showed up at the first rehearsal, mm. and we were doing What Is Hip? Yeah. <laughs> and he started comping. First he did a solo, which, of course, you know, mm. nobody else can do that solo like him. But then he starts comping the rhythm. Yeah. Yes. And, man, it just fell in the pocket. Now, I was looking at him. I had such a big smile on my face, man. I said, I don't need to worry about nothing, man. This is the same cat that I always knew. See, that's what I like. I like the rhythm just as much as the lead takeaway, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, if, I like the rhythm more. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hear you, I hear you. Now you got, um, oh, another thing I want to ask before I get into uh, the reissues is uh, um, 
someone to- I like Marcus Scott's voice, and someone told me on stage he's like a young James Brown. Is that true? And this goes he's back. He's got some James Brown in him. He's got some Johnny Taylor in him. Uh, you know, he's got some Ronald Isley in him. I mean, mm. he is. He's an amazing soul singer, and it was. It was such a godsend, man, because, you know, we had Ray Green singing for us. Yes. We loved him. We loved him. And he went to Santana, right? Well, you know, Santana offered him twice twice the money and half the work. What could he do? You know, he got two kids in college. We didn't blame him, you know, but we only had two months to find a guy. And God sent Marcus Scott, man. I mean, I think he's even better than Ray Green. He's, He's so uniquely himself, and yet... He has that classic old soul stamp. How old is he? Phenomenal. He's 33, just turned 33. He's got a lot of Phil Johnson in him, man, Mm. which I love, you know. (laughs) Voice is very polished, man. And that's a... Yeah, really cool. And and the James Brown comment uh, compliment that's that's a hell of a compliment. <laughs> yeah, that, because it, besides his voice, you know, uh, like there's only one James Brown. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the whole thing about his excitement on stage is just yes. phenomenal. I get I get so many comments from people, you know, because you know he was a slow study when he first got in. It was about almost two months before he clicked. Yeah, you know. But we just hung in there with him, and I remember the fans looking at him because our fans know us really well, right? You know? And uh, and they were like, "Lord, you know this guy." I don't know him, but, but he came. And then it was about two months in, and we did a gig, and he really clicked. And he looked at me, and goes, "Mimi, so I think I got it." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and after that, I just let him go, man, and he's owned it ever since. And now every night, people tell me, "Man, this singer." Phenomenal, you know. I'm like, yeah, he's pretty good, ain't he? <laughs> like you said, hitting it hard. Um, yep. Now you got four. Is this true? You got four reissues, four recordings coming out. Let's see. We got East Bay Archive Volume One. Oh, they're out already. Those are. Oh, those, those are, are out. Yeah, they're on Mac Avenue. We we had those on our own label. Yeah. And uh, and we licensed them out to Mac Avenue because frankly we were kind of administering our own label. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. We just license them to Mac, and, and now they've, they've got them out. Yeah, there's East Bay Archives, Oakland Zone, Great American Soul Book, and... Uh, uh, Live at the Fillmore uh, in San Francisco. 40th anniversary. Oh, yeah, the 40th anniversary. That really came out good. Yeah. Um, so, last thing I want to say is that you have, lo- last thing, loads of touring here, over 100 dates and more at it, from what I hear. It's like... I sit at a desk all day and I get tired. How do you guys, how do you veterans do it? Honestly, you know, uh, I think the touring is what keeps us young. Yeah. Uh, me and Rocco, we used to talk about this, you know. We get these invitations to our, uh, our you know, high school reunions, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, ne- we never go, you know. Yeah. But we look at the photos. <laughs> yeah. And he used to say, man, they look so old. And then you go, you know. I think it's because of what we do that keeps us young. <laughs> I said, yeah, <laughs> you might have something there, Frank. <laughs> well, I mean, have you looked at Mick Jagger? I mean, he, he runs around on stage for more than an hour. And, you know, it's like, yeah, how does he do that? It's because he's been doing it his whole life. It's yeah, it's got to be. People say, you know, I don't know how you, how you, how you do it, man. I, say, I don't know anything else. That's all I know. Yeah, that's I've true. I've done this since I was 17 years old, you know. Yeah. You're kind of like a long distance runner, right? 
I mean, you're so used to it, you could tour forever. It's <laughs> oh, amazing. Well, we never got about to drop. I mean, you know, we toured a few years back with BB King, and I used to watch him, man. And he would come off the bus, you know, mm. and it would look like he could barely get down them stairs off the bus, you know. And they'd help him to the stage and mm. help him up, but when the lights went on, man, the cat came alive, you yes. know, and just brought it for ninety minutes or two hours, you know. Yeah, and uh, and I said, man, that's my role model. That's what I'm going to do. I'm that's the beauty do it of I can't do it no more. That's the beauty of music, the fountain of youth. All right, that's wonderful. Thank you, Emilio. Thank you so much. I hope to catch you here. You're going to be in New York City, I see in October. So hope to catch you guys. Yeah. All right, man. Come say hello. Yep. Take care. Thanks for doing the interview. My, my pleasure. <laughs> Bye, Emilio. Bye. Thank you, Emilio. Thank you for being on the Goldmine Podcast. This is Pat Prince signing off, Goldmine Editor. You can go to goldminemag.com, read exclusive content, sign up for our weekly e-newsletter. There are also plenty of giveaways there. And you could get a percentage off of a subscription, have Goldmine delivered right to your home. If not, you could go to Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, or select record stores and pick up Goldmine. And you could get it right there. But wouldn't it be easier to just get it delivered at your home? Okay, thank you, and we'll see you in the next podcast. Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. I never really thought about tools until I bought a house in the suburbs. It's like this weird homeowner test if I need a tool for a project and don't have it. And my neighbor Ted loves to give me that look when I ask to borrow a pole saw. A year ago, I didn't even know pole saws existed. And now I gotta borrow one from Ted? What is happening? Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.